This week in Revolt Black News, it's a new year, but is it a new beginning? Millions of Americans believe the conspiracy theories that say Biden stole this election. They stormed the Capitol because they were outraged, hysterical actually. Trump's livid, mad as hell, because social media muted him finally for good. And the House impeached him for the second time. And while he and his followers are furious, here is my question. Where's all that outrage when it comes to black lives? When our people are eviscerated by the police, lynched by white supremacists, put on the front lines, disproportionately vulnerable to COVID-19 and then left for dead by shameless healthcare systems that deliberately disparage them. Where's their outrage then? Because those aren't fringe, far right-wing conspiracy theories, y'all. Those are facts. And they're facts that have been plaguing us and our people since America's inception. So yeah, it might be 2021, but is America still spelled with three Ks? Welcome to Revolt Black News. I'm your host, Ebony K. Williams. We are officially into a new day, a new administration. Biden is president, Kamala Harris, a black woman, an HBCU grad, a proud and active member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated is our vice president. There is so much to unpack from inauguration day. So joining me to help us break it all down, celebrated journalist, Jeff Johnson. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, Ebony, how are you? I'm doing excellent, brother. And, uh, Ski Fi to you. I want to start by talking about, <laughs> absolutely right. Uh, I want to start by saying uh, many noticed that Kamala Harris was wearing purple today as she took uh, her oath of the vice presidency. Many said it was an, an homage to the late and great Shirley Chisholm, uh, who was the first woman of any race to run for the nomination of presidency from any major political party. What was your reaction to just Kamala and this day and the legacy of Shirley Chisholm? It's it's mixed for me, right? I mean, Shirley Anita Chisholm, Barbadian and Guyanese parents, unbought and unbossed. I mean, I, I think mm-hmm. that her, her her road to um, running was very different than Kamala Harris, and and so I, I try not to make unfair historical comparisons because, frankly, mm-hmm. I don't think that our current vice president. Um, can stand next to Shirley Chisholm the same way, and she shouldn't. She's a different person. Um, mm-hmm. I, I also, Ebony, remember very clearly how I felt after um, President Obama was elected, and and this reality that th- there was this this um, rally that we acted like we selected a superhero, but we had elected a a, a politician, and yeah. and so I think we have to measure expectations in a real way not only for ourselves, but really to be fair to her. And so I acknowledge the cultural history of the moment and I celebrate it, but I try not to do it to the degree that I lose sight of the fact that I got to hold her accountable as vice president of the United States, even more than celebrate her as a sister. So Jeff, we saw the youngest uh, inaugural poet ever today, and a young sister, 22 years old, Amanda Gorman. Um, she rang words and, and, and drew up sentiment and spirit that was just really profound. Uh, and the participation we saw from Howard's marching band and all these kind of HBCUs today, it felt like we heard hope, a new day, a new reckoning, a new beginning, all these cultural shifts. But I know you always give it to us 100, Jeff. Is this a lot of pageantry? Uh, or, or do you really think there's an opportunity for newness here? It's both. It, it's all pageantry. 
because today is a day of pomp and circumstance and celebration. And so that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be pageantry today. Um, the, the question right. for us is don't get caught up in the party because at some point somebody going to say you ain't got to leave, but you got to get out of here. And and the celebration is going to be over and governing begins. And so I, I think that there is a lot of opportunity. You know, you know, Ebony, what I'm what I'm most afraid of is this notion of bad, uh, bad, good, best. And, and that in hmm. the midst of a pandemic and an economic reality, as well as in a political reality where uh, President now President Biden is going to have a ton of pressure to reverse a lot of what Trump has done. That's yep. the starting point for me. So once that stuff is reversed, when you when when the pandemic is under control, when when the economy is starting to recover, that's not a time to celebrate when you've done those things. That's the starting point. And I don't want us to right. be in a place where we're so accustomed over this last year to proverbially bad that we give mm. Biden's administration a pass on reaching for best, especially as it relates to black folks, because we always end up having our agenda items second to the country having health. And I'm just not for that. We saw Vice President Mike Pence today clapping and nodding his head in agreement to some of the things Biden was saying in his inauguration speech. Do you have any reaction? Um, what do you think? Where is the GOP in all of this, or does it even matter? I mean, listen, you, the, the GOP is now hedging bets. I mean, so you've got folks that, that are now trying to be good actors when they were bad actors last week. Um, you have folks that are entrenching themselves for um, the fight to come. Uh, you have those that are trying to figure out where real power is going to be and is this former person that was in the White House going to continue to be able to rally the troops in a way that benefits somebody getting elected? I don't care. Um, I, I think that the question is going to be about what's the agenda on the table and how is it pushed forward? Who's an obstructionist to this? And those that are obstructionist to the issues that we care about, how do we go after them? Um, so I, I could actually care less about the Democrats or the Republicans. I care about what's the what's our agenda how do we push it um, with both parties and get each of them to respond in a way that pushes policy? Um, the, the more we get entrenched in party politics when we're not in party politics, the more we acquiesce to their agenda versus push ours. Do you think, because the more you talk, Jeff, I mean, for all the black, I, I had this conversation with Tamika today in the show and Kimberly Jones, and I feel like most of us as a black kind of collective I think we're pretty solid on what this agenda is. I think it's very economically based. And I think that's the thing that many black folks in the space, Jeff, have felt has been missing, that we, we kind of can't seem to decide what the black agenda even is. I think we got it now. Do you agree? What does got it mean? Does it mean that we all have proverbial agreement or does it mean that that's translated into what kind of resources have to be established to do what? Are we talking about... Are we talking about um, expanding the work that Killer Mike and others are doing in Georgia by way of black banks and increasing um, the, the assets under management so that black controlled dollars can help black communities? Are we talking about um, dollars that go into the economy at the local level in certain industries that we know are going to be the future of the American economy versus the past? 
I mean, I, I think that sure, I think that there's a proverbial agreement that is economic, but the devil is That's always in the detail saying. and the nuance. Right, right. And, and, and right. I'm concerned about the detail and the nuance. Yeah. No, because we, we'll, we'll sing, we'll have these parties of agreement theoretically that don't translate into pragmatic action policy or transformation. And so it's not a, it's not an indictment against any of the people you mentioned or myself. It just is where does the transition from prefer, proverbial agreement about economics translate into pragmatic policy on economics that's not just federal in nature, but is comprehensive. Jeff Johnson, brother, thank you so much for your time and your insight, your intellect and your work. We've got a couple commercials on the way. When we come back, we've got today's headlines. We've got more Revolt Black News after this. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. Here are today's headlines. It's official. Joseph R. Biden has officially been sworn in as the 46th president of the United States of America, being sworn in at 78. Biden does become the oldest leader in the nation's history to take the oath of office. President Biden did serve under the 44th president, Barack Obama, from years 2008 through 2016, making him the 15th vice president to ascend to the presidency. And from one vice president to another, Kamala D. Harris has been officially sworn into office, becoming the first woman, the first South Asian, and of course, the first black person of any gender to be the vice president of the United States. Justice Sonia Sotomayor, being the first Latina Supreme Court justice, did the honor of swearing in Kamala Harris as the vice president. Now, right before the new administration came in, the rumor mill was all abuzz as to whether or not Donald Trump would pardon or give clemency to 100 plus so individuals. Now, his inner circle apparently did not advise Donald Trump to pardon his children, his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, or of course, the most controversial pardon of all, himself. Trump did decide to give many pardons and computations in the hip hop world. Trump commuted the prison sentence for Death Row Records co-founder Michael Harry O'Harris, whose release date wasn't scheduled for 2028, and that was for an attempted murder conviction. Sources say that Snoop Dogg, a longtime Trump critic, actually said many great things about the president on his way out, citing that he was very happy that Trump decided to pardon his Death Row associate. Trump also pardoned Lil Wayne for his charge of possession of a firearm and ammunition by a felon. Now, y'all, this was not surprising, as I said here on Revolt Black News and also on my podcast, Holding Court with Ebony K. Williams. The way Wayne was moving led me to believe that a pardon was on the way. For him to just randomly come out in such strong support of Trump right before the election after really not saying anything about this election for years. Also interesting with Lil Wayne's attorney's extreme effort to talk about and sing the praises of then-Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett, again a Trump nominee, talking about her appellate decisions to make sure that convicted felons did have access to their Second Amendment right to bear arms. Coincidence? Of course, we know not now. Lil Wayne did receive that Trump pardon. And Trump also commuted the sentence of Kodak Black, who's been serving a 46-month concurrent sentence for a weapons charge in Florida and a drug and weapons charge in New York, where he was trying to re-enter the U.S. from Canada. Now, all of these clemencies were just a few of Trump's total of 74 pardons and 70 commutations. Now, some very somber news. In the very last days of Trump's presidency, the total number of Americans dead from COVID-19 tops 400,000. More than 100,000 of those deaths occurred just in the last five weeks alone, all spikes and upticks over the holiday season, which means that even before the holidays, the 300,000 plus deaths in America around COVID-19 
was more than those who died during World War II. In international news, Uganda residents re-elected 76-year-old Uweri Musefini, who served as president since 1986, and he will head into his sixth term. The 35-year incumbent faced off against musician-turned-politician Bobby Wine, who claimed that the incumbent had the country's internet shut off, was incredibly corrupt, and prevented his team from providing evidence of voter fraud. Let's take a look. The majority of Ugandans, if not all Ugandans, are unable to follow what's happening. Because besides gagging and controlling uh, mainstream media, today we all know that the internet has been completely switched off. And in the U.S. Senate, both Democrat winners of the Georgia Senate runoffs, Reverend Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, were sworn into Congress yesterday. Reverend Warnock becomes, of course, the first black senator from the state of Georgia, and Ossoff becomes the first Jewish senator from the state. All right, now going over to sports. The NFL playoffs go into high gear this Sunday as the Tampa Bay Bucks face off against the Green Bay Packers in the NFC Conference Championships. And in the AFC Championship, we've got the Buffalo Bills facing off against the Kansas City Chiefs. The Bills, by the way, have not made an AFC Championship appearance since 1995. Lastly, in black excellence, Keisha Cole and Ashanti are finally going to have their versus battle. Yes, we have been waiting. It was previously postponed, of course, due to Ashanti's illness with COVID-19, but she has since fully recovered and says she is doing well and cannot wait for the matchup. We congratulate both of these queens, and we cannot wait to celebrate them tonight. All right, that's it for today's headlines. We've got much more show on the way. But first, earlier this week, it was Martin Luther King Day. So we're going to take this time to honor Dr. King for all of his activism and revolutionary status as a leader of our people. He was a Nobel Peace Prize winner, a notorious dreamer, but most of all, he was about the work. He was a doer. So everybody, y'all be about the work. Be the change you want to see. It's how Dr. King would have wanted it. Thank y'all. Let's take a look. Hey, Revolt, with everything going on in the world, and the fact that Monday was Martin Luther King Day, we want to stop and acknowledge Dr. King's work. We know he had a dream, he wanted peace, and we are a lot closer to all of that because of his tireless work. But there's a difference between being on a path to peace than actually achieving it. So let me use Dr. King's own words to make it clear on what type of peace we do not want. If peace means this, I don't want peace. If peace means accepting second-class citizenship, I don't want it. If peace means keeping my mouth shut in the midst of injustice and evil, I don't want it. If peace means being complacently adjusted to a deadening status quo, I don't want peace. If peace means a willingness to be exploited economically, dominated politically, humiliated and segregated, I don't want peace. In a passive nonviolent manner, we must revolt against this peace. Jesus says in substance, I will not be content until justice, goodwill, brotherhood, love, yes, the kingdom of God are established upon the earth. This is real peace. Peace is the presence of positive good. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. Office of President of the United States. 
Welcome back to Revolt Black News. Y'all, we've had about 30 episodes at this point, so y'all know what the vibes are. You know, we do not give you Republican news and we do not give you Democrat news. We give you one thing and one thing only, and that is black news. Now, though we already broke down the inauguration earlier in the show, we would be remiss to not go deeper and further investigate exactly what was said just now by President Biden. For without unity, there is no peace, only bitterness and fury. No progress, only exhausting outrage. No nation, only a state of chaos. This is our historic moment of crisis and challenge. And unity is the path forward. And we must meet this moment as the United States of America. If we do that, I guarantee you we will not fail. We have never, ever, ever, ever failed in America when we've acted together. And so today, at this time, in this place, let's start afresh, all of us. Let's begin to listen to one another again, hear one another, see one another, show respect to one another. Politics doesn't have to be a raging fire, destroying everything in its path. Every disagreement doesn't have to be a cause for total war. And we must reject the culture in which facts themselves are manipulated and even manufactured. So Biden talked a lot about one word, unity. Blah, 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 unity, blah, 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 unity, COVID, unity, blah, 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 white supremacy, unity, blah, 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 unity. I get it. But I'm inclined to echo the words of the great James Baldwin, and I'm paraphrasing here. But Baldwin said something like this. I can disagree. I can even love those that I disagree with, unless that disagreement is rooted in the inhumanity and stripping of my human dignity and way of life something like that. Well, that's the thing, President Biden. Everybody wants to be united, but certainly you cannot expect black people in this country to unite with blatant, overt white supremacists. And that is exactly what this call to action sounds like to me. So before we can unite as Democrats and Republicans, independents, blacks, white, or other, we have to get to the root, you see, of the fact that this nation is rooted on a lie, a lie that says, that white life is valued at a different level, a higher level, that white life operates at a level of supremacy and supreme citizenship in this country. We gotta up uproot that from the gut. We have to liberate and fully occupy first-class citizenship as black people to the point where we get first-class healthcare in this country, first-class housing in this country, a first-class education in this country, protected in a first-class way against law enforcement. See the vibes? See, when black folks occupy an existence in this country that occupies its most supreme level, well then, and only then, President Biden, can we unify. Now y'all know, just like from President Obama's early days and his presidency, the early days are important. So, listen, President Biden, black Americans, black women in particular, in many ways put you in this presidency. We also did the work Georgia specifically did the work. We asked him, hell, I know I personally begged him, and they delivered. You have a Democrat Senate, a Democrat House of Representatives, 
and the White House. There is really no policy agenda you cannot pursue at this point. Sir, you have a mandate. And Madam Vice President, you do as well. You have a mandate to deliver on a legislative package that exclusively and unequivocally advocates for first-class citizenship of blackness in America. Yes, the time is now. We say Black Lives Matter. That is now a mainstream epithet. Let's prove it. President Biden, Vice President Harris, we are looking to you. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, we've got Tamika Mallory and Ms. Kimberly Jones and also Dr. Bernard Ashby here to examine some of the residual effects of 2020 and how they lead into 2021. Y'all, we've got more Revolt Black News right after this. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. Now, 2020 did not leave a lot to the imagination, and a lot of havoc has followed us into 2021. So listen, we wanted to break down some of the most important and critical issues that followed us last year, like COVID-19, Black Lives Matter, and of course, the Georgia elections and how they impacted the overall national elections. So listen, most of these issues sadly were not new for 2020. In fact, our people have been dealing with these issues for centuries, which is exactly why we're still dealing with them in 2021. Here to help us break these issues down are some leaders and well-known activists of our community, Sister Tamika Mallory and Sister Kimberly Jones. Welcome to you both. Hello, thanks for having us. Yes, thank, thank you, you for having us on. All right, Tamika, I wanna start with you. Now, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor were really kind of the catalyst, right, for what we saw in the social justice movements and Black Lives Matter movements of the summer and going into the fall of 2020. Now, we're just a few weeks into 2021, and yet we have already seen a black man, a brother by the name of Patrick Warren Sr., killed by the hands of cops. When we look at the state of social justice going into this new administration, Tamika, what are your expectations? Well, you know, first of all, I'm, I'm sure that uh, more of our men and women have been killed uh, aside from Patrick, right? Uh, his story is obviously very tragic, but what we know is that Unfortunately, people are being killed by police in this country very, very often, several times a day, actually. Um, there is data out there that supports it. Um, I think the idea of, and, and, it, and I really have been challenging myself with this thought of the use of the word reform. Reform has not worked. Even if I became president, or if you, Ebony, became president today, um, because of the fact that the systems are so deeply rooted in racism that has existed since the foundation of this nation, it will not change because there is a space. There actually has to be a tearing down of the old mindset and building of something. So we're already seeing, it's being reported that Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris are starting to put out what their first days, literal first days of their administration are going to look like. They're going to uh, roll back the Muslim ban. They're going to immediately do significant Im uh, immigration legislation they're talking about, a massive immigration plan. They're going to uh, cancel the Keystone Pipeline. Uh, they're going to immediately re-enter the Paris Climate Agreement. All fantastic things, all things that will in some way impact black people. But but I'm not seeing this kind of day one urgency, if you will, around the social justice issues, the, the criminal, uh, to your point, uh, to complete gutting of the current uh, police system as we know it and a rebuilding of it. I'm not seeing that in the conversation. Um, does that concern you? Because it does concern me. Kimberly? Yes, it definitely concerns me. And one of the things that I was saying, I'm not seeing anything 
really that directly affects the black agenda that's on that rollout. And so we do have to hold people's feet to the fire, um, not only just this administration, but the senators and congressmen um, that we just got elected and put into office. I've been screaming for years that I think we need to reinstate the Freedmen's Bureau because what we need to do is a second reconstruction. And so we need to reinstate a bureau that is specifically dedicated to combating the ills that African-Americans have faced as a result of the laws that are on this book and slavery. The 13th Amendment is really the root of why we are still getting murdered in the street right now. I think that's brilliant. And I actually think that there's a mandate to finally support it. I think for the first time in my lifetime, uh, politically speaking, there is the political capital to finally specify something like uh, uh, Reconstruction 2.0. If not now, then when would we be able to specific? And I never thought I'd say that, y'all. I want to be clear. I never thought we'd get to a point in American history where we can airmark actual federal funds for the specific and limited purpose of black liberation. But I believe that day is here. I believe that we need certain political leaders to to really speak on that very precisely. Tamika, who do you think those could be? Well, I certainly think that uh, Congresswoman Cori Bush is one of those individuals, right? We have already uh, witnessed her leadership and uh, the boldness of what she says and, uh, you know, Ayanna Presley and others who understand uh, the black agenda from a particular perspective. And even when I think about someone like Jamal Bowman, from New York, uh, who went straight into Congress and said, I'm joining the squad. I'm going to stand next to AOC and Ilhan Omar and others. Those are the types of bold officials that we need. I think one of the major issues that we have to be careful is that we as Black people do not end up in a honeymoon stage as we did with President Obama. There are many Black folks who will start saying we should wait and see you know, we need to calm down. But to your point, mm. Ebony, there is a list that you just you just went through, a list of things on immigration and other issues that they are already moving yeah. on. We can't wait yep. to yep. see. We should not be in a position where we have to tiptoe around the, the White House and the uh, administration that we actually hire. What can we as Black people do peacefully, as Tamika talked about, civilly, respectfully, but to light a fire under DC's ass. Well, listen, Ebony, not peacefully. I have I have now removed Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I misquoted you said. Peaceful. Um, you said I'm not saying peaceful anymore because you can't okay. say no justice, no peace and then talk about being peaceful. We should be nonviolent, of course. Um, you know, that is that is that's a that's the difference. But I think we need to raise hell. Absolutely. Uh, Kimberly, I want to ask you one thing. What do you think so far about uh, Biden's picks to his cabinet? Um, you know, I'm going to have to agree with my brother Gary Chambers on this one and say that it is unfortunate that we don't see any African-American men on that on that on those lists at all. It's an opportunity for us to stand up for the give voice to the very person who see receiving some of the worst atrocities in these moments and in these times. That is a voice that needs to be in the room, is the voice of the African-American male. And I'm concerned that we haven't seen any at this point and what that will continue to look like. And I would love to see a black man as the head of education in this country so that we can find an opportunity to bring our young black boys along because they are truly struggling in the education system. 
incredibly important clarity, point of clarification, right? Because we have got to kill this narrative that it is a net sum zero game between black men and black women uh, ascending in this country. It is not. That is a lie of the greatest kind. You know, it is a collaborative effort between black men and black women uh, to support each other in collaborative ascension. And, and we want to be very clear about that. I totally agree. Um, I do want to uh, just point out, I do believe there's one brother um, that is, uh, I think, Secretary of Defense, I believe, um, but not enough, not even close to enough. Exactly. Which which one could argue? Because I'm I'm really on one, y'all. I'm deep into cast by Isabel Wilkerson, and one could argue that the the brother being in charge of defense is another um, iteration of the stereotypes of black maleness being primarily one of physicality. One could make that point. Anyway, um, last up, I, I would submit that. My good sir, uh, the vice president-elect Kamala Harris has a particular mandate as it comes to black people and police brutality, uh, and in large part because of her, to be generous, I think, complicated history with black people and police brutality. Do you think she will deliver? Do you think there is an opportunity for Kamala to be a specific part of this administration's delivering on its promissory note to black America as it relates to black folks and the police? I think there's always an opportunity. I think it's just a, a, it's just an issue of whether or not those opportunities are taken. But I think the opportunity is there. I think these cabinet selections are part of it. When we're talking about education, you know, one of the things that has upsets me the most about the state that we're in in education is that public education, as we know it, was created by the 13 black lawmakers of Reconstruction. And yet our kids mm. get the work in of the stick of this like educational caste system that we live in in America. So I I think that when you start looking at ways in which she can be impactful, I think education is one of those spaces where, as much as I hate to say this, where people don't put as much emphasis as they need. Therefore, there's room to grow it, deliver upon it, mm. gut it, and change it. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm a big nerd, and I truly believe education is the pathway, uh, the primary pathway, really, for our people to just kind of come out of these generational poverty cycles. And going back to Tamika's point, I believe, earlier, actually, both of your points, uh, Kimberly and Tamika, why not let that be the opportunity for the initial phase of um, reparations? That's what I was going to say. Like, I got this whole reparations plan, y'all, where we have a specific narrowly tailored allocation of federal funds for the education and the support of black students, period, period. I, I can't see who could argue against that at this point in time in our history. What do y'all think about that? I think you're 100 percent right. I think you're one of the people who has the plans that needs to be at the table um, to inform this administration about the black agenda. I've been saying the same about uh, public housing and also housing subsidies. The system for how uh, it is decided whether or not this government will give you assistance is archaic. So knowing that uh, in order to get Section 8, the, the man has to not be in the home, that's something that should be changed immediately. We should have yep. a system, of course, hold everybody accountable that they might go out and work and do the things they need to be to do to be um, a part of a successful part of society and a, a, a um, help to society. But at the end of the day, um, we, we know the rent is too damn high. And so yeah. we need to be able to keep the black family together. And that should be a huge part of our agenda that we're pushing on this administration. And to me, that is 
reparations. Listen, I could talk to you queens all day. I can't thank you enough from the bottom of my heart and head. Tamika, Kimberly, queens, thank you both so much for everything you're doing on the ground level and up into the echelons of where decisions are being made. We appreciate you so much. All right, next up, we're gonna have a very important conversation with Dr. Bernard Ashby about the latest developments of COVID-19 and the black community. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Ashby. Pleasure to be back. Thanks for having me. Now, President Biden has announced that a speedy vaccine rollout will take place. Uh, can you indulge us as to some of the logistics? Uh, I saw a piece in the New York Times by Ezra Klein that said it was, you know, pretty ordinary, a lot of this stuff. He was pretty shocked that a lot of these things had not already taken place. Anything else the black community can expect to see from Biden's COVID plan? As it pertains to the uh, Biden plan, uh, I agree with Ezra Klein. It's pretty obvious. I mean, really what he's doing is just... Um, scaling up production and distribution, but but it's just something that, that should have been done from the get-go. And, and this basically goes back to what we've seen time and time again from the Trump administration, and unfortunately in my state with Governor DeSantis, where you have individuals that really can't think beyond profit. You know, MLK, he pointed to this 50 plus years ago where he saw our government choosing profits over the, the concerns of the people. And he thought this was one of the biggest tragedies of the United States. And, and unfortunately, again, it, it's occurring today. Uh, the last time you were on the show, I asked you a very direct question and you gave me a very direct answer. Is it safe for black people in this country to take this vaccine? And the answer still remains yes. The only difference between then and now is that I have gotten the vaccine myself. After my first dose, I did check my antibodies and I wasn't antibody positive. You are boosting your immunity, uh, so to speak. You're gonna have a, a much more robust immune response. And when folks have these symptoms, that is the, the, the immune system responding to the vaccine, you can have a fatigue, you can even have fever and actually feel like you might even have the virus and have rigors uh, for up to 48 to 72 hours. But that's more the exception than the rule. The most common symptoms are uh, arm soreness and uh, a little bit of fatigue. Uh, is there anything else, any other resources, or if we have questions about vaccination, where we could go to find out more information? Check your Department of Health website. Check your, check your State Department of Health website. But uh, again, I'm, I'm straight up pissed off at our leadership who, who has consistently and constantly failed our, our, our people. Indeed, and, and I would just go ahead and add deliberately, Dr. Ashby, brother, thank you so much for your expertise, uh, your willingness to give our people what they need to know as it relates to COVID-19 and this vaccine. Uh, the work you're doing on the front lines is, uh, you know, we can't thank you enough. All right, we're going to step away for one last commercial break. And then Valicia Butterfield is going to join us. She's from the Recording Academy. And she'll moderate a very important conversation about diversity and entertainment. You don't want to miss it. Stick around. We've got much more Revolt Black News after this. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. I'm Valicia Butterfield-Jones, Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer for the Recording Academy. We are the home of the Grammy Awards and we advocate for music professionals year round. We are so excited to host this very important conversation during a pivotal time in our world's history. We are experiencing a global pandemic, the transition of power, and of course, a racial reckoning. So without further ado, I introduce you to Chairman of the Board and Interim President and CEO, Harvey Mason Jr. and Tanya Christian, respected journalist and writer. Let's start with the obvious. Harvey, you are my boss and mentor uh, and the Diversity and Inclusion Task Force was created 
over a year ago to address many of the challenges, not only in our industry, but at the Recording Academy. So can you first share with us why the Diversity and Inclusion Task Force was created, the purpose and its mission, and our progress so far? Well, the task force was created by the Academy, actually. We rolled it out in May of 2018. It was formed and brought together by, actually, Mrs. Obama's chief of staff, Tina Chin, and it consisted of people from within the music industry and outside the music industry, uh, men, women, people from all different areas, different uh, races. And their objective was to really look at the Academy, and we asked them to look and take a hard look at the Academy, but also look at the music industry as a whole and give us their thoughts and input as to what we could do differently, what could we do better. Uh, so in the last 12 months since I've been put in as president and CEO, we've entered into a new partnership with The Color of Change, uh, to really uh, drastic racial uh, work that needed to be done inside and outside the academy. We've uh, started the Black Music Collective, which is something that's going to really transform the way the academy looks at, approaches, thinks about Black music in our academy and in our industry. Uh, we've rolled that out across the country, got great leadership and great participation from our industry. Uh, we've changed the way we constitute our boardroom. We've made it much more diverse and inclusive. We've uh, made steps to uh, change our membership. I mean, there's so many things, Alicia, at the academy that, is, that have changed in the last 12 months. It's the list goes on and on, bringing on a chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officer. Obviously, so excited to have you on board, but that was a huge step for us. We've never had that. So there's so many firsts at the Academy over the last 12 months. Uh, the list is long. So let's switch gears for a moment. Tanya, specifically, I'd like to touch on print media. We've seen the disproportionate impact that the pandemic has had on Black media, forcing a lot of difficult decisions. Has this been frustrating for you specifically as a journalist? Yeah, of course. I mean, um, print media has has evolved quite a bit over the last several years. And um, Black media, I think, has been hit pretty hard. And I think what's frustrating about that is um, seeing different outlets go under or have to make tough decisions. Um, it's unfortunate because there are so few of them. And so, you know, we have several magazines on newsstands, but there are so few that speak to the Black community specifically. And it's important that we have these, these legacy brands. So I do think it's unfortunate that this is happening. Um, I hope that, that they're all able to make a comeback. I know recently Ebony has gone through some changes and then, you know, they're hoping to come back. So I, I, I pray that this is temporary and that we continue to see these brands thrive in the future. Um, everybody has been hit hard this year. And so hopefully they make a comeback stronger than ever. And Harvey, on the same note of the pandemic, we never could have predicted that the pandemic would still be raging forcing us to postpone the Grammy Awards to March. Can you share with us also, do you see this helping or even harming our diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts? Well, it's been tough because I think the pandemic has really brought forth some uncomfortable truths about uh, race and socioeconomic issues, things like that. Um, and there's a reckoning going on right now that I think hopefully music can serve as, as something to bring us together. and. We've had to postpone our show till March 14th, unfortunately, but I, we didn't feel it was the right time. We wanted everyone to be safe. We wanted to consider 
how the pandemic also disproportionate, disproportionately affects black and brown communities, uh, and that being a big piece of our constituency. So postponing the show was important. As far as whether or not it will bring to light uh, any results or changes in what we're going through right now. You know, I'm overly optimistic sometimes, but I do think the power of music is important. I do think it brings people together. It can unify people, specifically the involvement of, of the black music community. And we do have such a high percentage of involvement in creation of content and consumption of content that I think our show has a unique platform. And if we can use that platform for good and we can use that platform to unify and to heal and to amplify messages messages, then I think we've we've done right by, by our community through the show. So as we close out um, and start to wind down, Harvey, if there's an artist, producer, songwriter, any working professional or, you know, person interested in working in music, if there's one thing that they, you'd like for them to take away from this conversation and ways that they can get involved in our work, what would it be? Gosh, it would be just be involved. It would be we hear your criticism or we hear your comments or suggestions, but I respectfully ask that you get involved so that we can work together and so that I can hear from you directly. So it's not me listening in you know, on a clubhouse or, you know, hearing somebody said, somebody said, somebody said, if you have thoughts and ideas and you want to better our industry and better our community, better the academy, I only ask that you become a member, that you be involved, that you care and you're passionate enough about your career and all of our careers that you come to the table and let's work together. I am all ears, literally and figuratively. So I'm here to listen. I'm here to help. My only mission and purpose in being chair or president of the Academy is to better our industry and better our, our place of work. So uh, I ask that you get involved and bring me anything you think we should be doing better. And Tanya, to help us close, as Black women, uh, what is your hope for us this year around media and representation? Yeah, well, um, I, we've always had a voice. We've also always had a strong voice. And so uh, my hope is that people continue to, to realize that and to utilize it in different ways. You know, um, it's so important for us to be in certain rooms, for us to be, um, uh, you know, able to share our thoughts and our voices on different platforms. And so um, getting the opportunity to do that is important. And so I just hope that we continue to do that. And I'm pretty confident that we will. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you, Revolt Black News, for hosting this important conversation. And be sure to tune in to the Grammy Awards on CBS on March 14th. Thank you all. Thanks, Alicia, Tanya, Revolt. Valicia says, thank you so much for moderating that informative and important conversation. All right, y'all, it feels great to be back. Great to be back with y'all. Great to be back at work. So let's get to it because there is much work to do. So look, the Georgia House of Representatives, they're considering a legislation to replace the statue of one of the Confederate vice presidents, Alexander Stevens, with the important, the late, and the very great Congressman John Lewis. We know that is a no-brainer, y'all. It has to happen. Actually, several of the GOP are on board, including the Republican governor, Ryan Kemp. But y'all know how it is. We cannot leave this completely up to them. These elected officials are supposed to represent us. They work for us. So we must peacefully and respectfully remind them and make our voices heard. So go to Georgia's official website. We're going to include it right below. And you'll see every member of the House of Representatives in Georgia. You'll also see their office phone numbers. Y'all call them. Call the Republicans. Call the Democrats, call all of them. 
and implored them to replace the Confederate's face with the face of a true patriot, a beloved John Lewis. Y'all, it's time to get back to work. For Revolt Black News, I'm Ebony K. Williams. See you next time.